Warning, Tongue and Geek contains heavy spoilers. If you haven't read, watched, or played the content being reviewed this episode, know that we will definitely spoil major plot points. Also, this show isn't for kids. We use words like and and it would take too much time and effort to edit them all out. Please don't tell our moms. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Tongue and Geek, where two more white guys on the internet give their unsolicited opinions on all things Animorphs. I'm Isaac. I'm Tyler. And Erica has returned to talk about the Animorphs series, written by Catherine Applegate and her husband, Michael Grant. Uh, Catherine Applegate's husband, not Erica's. This time we'll be covering books two and three, The Visitor and The Encounter. Do we need to do a background section here? We pretty much covered it last time, right? Yeah, yeah, I think we more than covered it last time. Yeah, quick rundown. Kids turn into animals to fight brain-controlling slug aliens. That's the general premise of this franchise. Go watch our first episode of Animorphs if you haven't already, because we're just going to jump straight into the plot of, let's, I guess, jump into book two, which was The Visitor. Um, this was the one from Rachel's perspective. What were our first thoughts on The Visitor with Rachel? First thoughts. Um, another solid book. The story kind of slowed down a little from the first book, because the first book kind of hit the ground running and it was like this kind of big sort of adventure story. Uh, the second book slows down a bit. Um, the mission is a little, a little smaller in scope, but no less dangerous. And I mean, the, the stakes are still there, yeah. but what it does is it lays the groundwork for more character dynamics. You get to understand some of the characters a bit more and it introduces a bit more lore and a bit more info on what the conflict is going to be like moving forward. Yeah, Erica, your thoughts? Uh, a lot of fun, because a lot of the plot revolves around a kitty cat. <laughs> so, I like that a lot. I really like that, again, and this was not something I had ever really thought about not having read Animorphs, that we're getting different character perspectives. I like that there is, like... You know, we get Rachel in this second book. We had Jake in the first one. Like, instead of having to switch characters in a within a book, especially with such short books, it's kind of nice that we're getting a whole book dedicated to a different character. So I was a big fan. Yeah. I think what really stood out to me in this one was that sort of switch in perspective from Jake to Rachel. Because my biggest problem in the first one was Jake was sort of like the dullest of the characters. He just mm -hmm. wasn't as interesting as the others. But getting to see him from Rachel's perspective, we start to actually see why he was kind of chosen as the leader figure. Because he's willing, like Rachel, he's willing to take more risks, but he's also a little more like willing to engage with the group than Rachel is. Like Rachel's maybe the boldest member of the Animorphs, but Jake matches that boldness and also is a little more willing to like try and give people directions, try and uh, make sure that everybody's on the same page. We see a little bit more of that here, like especially when he turned into a flea and like hid on Rachel without her knowing because she was going in alone 
and like was risking her own life without she was holding back information from the team and he knew he needed to like step in take charge of the situation so um it was nice being able to see a little more of like why jake functions as a character from another character's perspective uh, and how that kind of pissed Rachel off a bit because, you know, he also endangered his own life by being there. I think Jake is a more interesting character from Rachel's uh, point of view as well. Um, I'm sure once we get to another one of his solo books, it'll it'll be a different story. I like how he's kind of taken up the quintessential leader role. He takes responsibility. He feels like he has to take responsibility for everybody else. He has a sort of like leave no man behind, like yeah. I won't ask anybody to do what I'm not willing to do myself. Sort of leadership position. It's funny watching um, him bounce off of Rachel because she's the most hot headed and gung ho. So yeah. that's only going to lead to more, I think. You know, conflict between the two as they get older, and the conflict, you know, mm-hmm. with the years continues. Uh, should we do a little bit of plot recap? What's what's funny about this one is that not too many things actually happen. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, this one is all from Rachel's perspective, and we learn that she has a friend named Melissa, who is the daughter of the vice principal Chapman, who they already know is one of the Yerks, and, like, one of the higher-ranking Yerks, uh, like, directly under Visser 3. So the Animorphs decide, hey, uh... Rachel, you should try and, you know, talk to Melissa and find out what's going on, uh, if she knows anything, if she's a yerk, see if we can get any information out of her. Rachel ends up turning into Melissa's pet cat, which is very interesting. Fluffer McKitty is his name. Fluffer McKitty. I, I like that they had to catch the cat, because that, that was a fun sequence of them, like, ah, oh, shit, this tomcat's scratching us all to shit. Like, oh, I climbed up a tree, we can't get it, how are we gonna get down? Oh, we'll turn into a small rodent and lure it down by making it try and eat us. <laughs> Which was, like, a funny little... Like, you knew it was nobody was gonna die during this segment, but it was a funny little high-stakes moment where... Ah, crap, what if she just gets eaten by a cat before she even gets the chance to morph into it and the mission fails right there? The series does a good job of adding interesting action sequences aside from just, hey, we're fighting aliens as animals now. Like, it adds in a bunch of stuff where it's like, we're animals and we're having to deal with animals and, like, we have to deal with all the ordinary dangers that comes with, like, an animal life. Uh, just to add on top of um, your point about the the variety and sort of like set pieces, that's probably what I liked. There are two aspects of what I liked most about this book is one, the variation in, you know, all the trouble that they run into just trying to do missions and the look at the, you know, personal stakes of people outside of the main group of the Irk invasion. Like uh, like you just said, uh, Rachel has to turn into a, not a mole, what was it, a shrew. True. She has to turn into a shrew to lure Fluffer McKitty out of a tree so she can turn into him. And the Applegates, they don't go easy on any of the characters. Like, if if they can find a way to throw a wrench in their plan, like, they're gonna do it. Like, nothing ever comes easy. And um, I think that's 
pretty cool for a series aimed at kids. Uh, I think we're going to be repeating ourselves about Omen for for a, a series aimed at kids. It, it does this and it does that. They fail um, a lot. There's a lot of failure. Yeah, I, I I guess instead of us repeating ourselves like for a kids book, it's da 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 da. Like they don't treat their audience like dummies. No, like th- they don't treat the intended audience with kid gloves to to use a dumb saying um they they respect the intelligence of of the age group that the books were targeted for about the emotional stakes um rachel's friend melissa she's a just another sad character just <laughs> the list of sad characters because yeah. we have to see this little girl and just be devastated by the fact that she's lost her parents and she just she doesn't know why she lost her parents. She doesn't know that they're aliens. Yeah. So both, go ahead. I was just going to explain both of Melissa's parents are Yerks. Um, both of them are controlled by Yerks. So Melissa doesn't know this. She doesn't know that her parents have been taken over. But the subtle changes in their behavior is enough to cue her in that, like, something's wrong with her family. And she's just having to deal with the fact that, like, her parents don't love her anymore. And it's horribly tragic because it's not, like, it, the, the parents aren't, like, abusive to her in the sense of, like, shut up, go, or, like, hit her or anything. But they're just, like, vacant and distant. And it's horrible to see because this little girl is just like, Dad, can you come help me with your homework? And she, Dad's like, maybe later, sweetheart, in, like, a robotic tone of voice. And it's just, it's so depressing. Yeah, and um, the mission that she she goes on to infiltrate uh, the Chapman house to spy on Principal Chapman, Vice Principal Chapman, try to get some information. Um, there's a whole lot of danger involved in that, but at the end, like she's got to get out of the house because she's got to morph back because of the two hour time limit on a morph. And they're like, Rachel, come on, you got to get out of there. But because she's seen how her friend is in turmoil um, over her parents. She decides to stay as the cat, you know, and comfort her. And it's just this really sweet, sad moment mm-hmm. where this little girl has nobody and she's just snuggling up on her cat and just like, you know, talking to the cat, like, what did I do? Why don't they love me anymore? Like what's going on? And it's just like, Ooh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's heavy. It's, it's emotionally heavy. Yeah. Erica, your thoughts? Um, it is it is pretty heavy, and I don't really think it can be said enough that that's not really what I was expecting when I was <laughs> getting into these books. It's really sad, like Isaac said, to watch uh, Melissa interact with her parents because, like, I think in that scene they basically just tell her, "Oh, you're smart. Figure out your own homework." And like Isaac said, it's just like very robotic, and she's just taken taken aback and this entire time Rachel has been kind of thinking well maybe Melissa is a yerk because Melissa has seemed so different and it's just sad to know that the reason she seems so different is because her home life is just terrible now uh it it doesn't have to have her be taken over by an alien for everything to change completely for her yeah and she feels abandoned by Rachel too yeah like she brings up that like like, whenever Rachel first tries to talk to Melissa, Melissa's like, what do you care? Like, you aren't there for me anymore. And it's like, damn it. She, this one little girl mm-hmm. is all alone. And it's, it's a great, 
it's a great insight into like the personal stakes of the Animorphs because we knew like Jake had his brother Tom that he wanted to save. Like that that's a great stake for Jake, but like seeing the impact that this invasion is having on individual lives like it makes it so much more personal than just we have to stop aliens from taking over the world. It's now like we have to stop like these children's lives from being ruined, like from children losing their parents to like losing the love of their parents. Like it's so it's such a like grounded message. And like it, ah, it's it's it was a very surprising change from the first book. Whereas the first book was setting up the lore and the details and the personal stakes and like the like the hot of the stakes. This one was very much like a grounded like, okay, now that we know how big everything is, here's a very a smaller story where less happens, but you also have a very very personal moment for Rachel trying to deal with this. Yeah, and um Melissa kind of she kind of works in two ways. Um just as like a character in and of herself and what she means to Rachel, but also she's kind of representative of everything that's going on with the Yerks, you know, um under everybody's noses. Like if it's if this is happening to Melissa and her family, how many more families is it happening to? Yeah. How big of a reach have the Yerks, you know, gotten so far? Because if if it has Tom, if it has their principal, their vice principal, and um, the mother, who, who who else do they have? Like, are they are they all around the world? You know, how, how many people are Yerks now? Yeah, there's just it, it it creates a new sense of scale that's both larger and smaller than the first book set. Yeah, going back to a bit of the plot review. She gets into the house. We talked about that and everything. She finds out that Chapman can talk to Visser 3 through like a hologram. And Visser 3 notices the cat in the room with Chapman and orders it killed immediately. Which, like, I mean, that's brilliant. Of course, Visser 3, who's like the leader of the Yerks, would know. Like, yeah, that thing's totally an andalite. It can totally change. We can totally morph. They can be anywhere. That's totally an Antelot spy. And um, he only doesn't follow through with having her killed because a Chapman points out that, like, if we kill this cat, it's going to make the daughter even more, like, stressed out and suspicious. And B, the way that Rachel copes with hearing that, like, she kind of lets the cat brain take over and act more naturally than her human brain would like, she basically is like, if I act, if I try to run or if I act suspicious right now, Visser three will kill me. But if I pretend I'm a normal cat and I don't understand what he's saying, then it won't matter. Like I might be able to, I might be able to sneak past him as, Oh, I am just a regular animal, which I thought was a very clever way of like hiding in plain sight. Um, yeah, th- th- there's a lot of legwork um, done with expanding the relationship between the kids and their morphs. Um, we get a decent amount of it in the first book, but this one really goes into like hyper detail. It's if, if anything, the second book is mostly about, you know, the relationship between the, the person and the morph. And that only extends into the third book even more, which we'll get to later. We, uh, she, Rachel, she turns into a shrew. 
and this is a whole long description of what it's like to be a shrew, just the skittish fear that she had to overcome with with the rodent mind and the desire to you know dig up maggots and yeah. eat the maggots and the the smell of like dead flesh that the that the maggots were also consuming and overcoming that as well as overcoming the sheer just crazy independence of a cat mind on top of that. So I really like how the series so far is exploring the dichotomy between, you know, the human mind, the animal mind, how to come to grips with both of them, how to use both of them and knowing when to use one over the other. Yeah, each morph is totally unique. The way that, like, it's narrated, the way that you can see them battling against it. Jake points out while he's a flea that basically, like, the flea's brain isn't big enough to try and overwrite mine. So it's basically like, I'm just me in a flea body. And I, the only thing I really know is, like, oh, here's the warmth of blood to go towards. And that's the only thing, that's the only influence it has. So there's, like, sort of an advantage of picking, like, more simple-minded creatures, but also, like, a weakness in it because they have less abilities that makes them necessarily useful. I just think it's cool that, like you guys were saying, like, this is the first time that having an animal brain is kind of like an advantage. Because previously, we've really seen how it's a disadvantage. Like, how hard it is to focus, like, when Jake was the lizard in the first book. Like, it's just you fighting against this other inside you. And I think, like, my favorite parts of the book were definitely when Rachel was the cat. Um, Not only her really special moment with her friend Melissa, but also just how absolutely, like, fascinated Visser 3 was with the concept of a cat. Like, him, him being like, this seems like that other creature we saw. And he's, like, referring to Jake when he was the tiger. Yeah. And Chapman being like, yeah, it's like a very small house version <laughs> of the thing that you saw before. Um, so, again, my point being, it's just kind of cool because we've really only seen how it is incredibly difficult to be an Animorph and try to focus with the animal brain. So, it's cool to see a way that it was actually advantageous. Yeah, and that it helped her, you know, cloak herself almost. Saved her life. Yeah. So she gets in, she spies on them, and they decide to go back to try and learn more about where Visser 3 is at, like where the mothership is hidden, uh, any plans that they might have. She goes back in again. Rachel doesn't tell the other Animorphs that Visser 3 had caught her, uh, that Visser 3 had seen her. So the rest of the team doesn't know that, like, oh, she was really close to dying there. But she goes back in. This time she does get caught. Uh, Visitor 3 is like, that thing came in here again. That's totally an andalot. We have to catch it. Uh, she gets caught, uh, put into a carrier, and they are going to take her away to the mothership to get, like, interrogated and murdered. So... Like, suddenly this one little mission, which was really just, like, an information recon mission. Like, they didn't have a specific goal of, like, we're going to stop the Yerks from doing anything. It was really just, we're trying to kind of figure out who the Yerks are and what their plans are. And it goes horribly awry with their second outing. Jake is on Rachel as a flea because he suspected that she was hiding information from the team. So he and... Uh, Rachel are now in a cat carrier taken away to like the construction site where they first met the Andalite who gave them their powers 
and it's only through some clever usage of the construction equipment and some very quick like morphing between like from a flea to a tiger on Jake's part and then the other animorphs coming in and like throwing off the aliens that Rachel manages to escape with her life because she was like she was close to the time limit. Uh, she was almost stuck in a morph forever, and then Visser Three turned into a gigantic like rock golem monster and about crushed her to death. But she got away just because I think Tobias picked her up. <laughs> he like lifted yeah. her, oh, which I did not know a hawk could lift a cat. <laughs> I read Del Hawk. Uh, you can if you're thirsty for the yeah. cat. Oh, God. We, we haven't even touched on the Rachel Tobias relationship. We see more of that in both of these books. It's not explicitly stated, but there's a lot of suggestion of Rachel and Tobias were very much crushing on each other before he got turned into a hawk, and they're still crushing on each other, and, like, Rachel feels so, so bad for Tobias for being stuck in his hawk body, and she's the one who's, like, trying the hardest to comfort him. And he's also the one who's trying to, like, keep her from being too reckless. Because, like, he... I, I really like the way Tobias is utilized now in this series. Because he functions as their primary, like, recon. Um, the relationship is probably, so far, the most compelling of, you know, the, the inner dynamics of the group. Because Rachel is Tobias's uh, shoulder to cry on. He's always flapping his cute little hawk wings over to her house, scritching at her at her window, mm -hmm. and just you know being being sad hawk boy at her. And um, she's always there to give him the boost that he needs and sort of um, ground him. I get it because he's a bird and he flies. And he's <laughs> <grounded>. um, <laughs> which makes Rachel an interesting character. Um, just through her relationship with Tobias, because he's not just, you know, the go get him reckless one of the group. She's also attentive to her friend's feelings. Yeah. And she has this this nurturing side to her. Um, she's the most openly emotional one of the group as well. So it's this cool balance between, you know, the hothead and, you know, the what what would be the word? Not the lover. That sounds weird, but the... She wears her emotions on her sleeve. Yeah. I just, uh, like you guys are saying, it was kind of cool to see more of her personality. Like, we see it not only with Tobias, but like we said, with Melissa. And I also thought this is like a unrelated piece of information, but because of her relationship with Melissa, we get to somewhat find out the ages of these characters. Um, which is something that apparently is never really specifically stated in the series. When I had first started reading these, I think I was thinking more of like a Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, like young age. Yeah. And based on the information we get from Rachel, which again is really revealed because of her interpersonal relationship with Melissa, she's looking at a picture of Melissa that she has and she says oh that was taken a couple years ago at melissa's 12th birthday party so that kind of implies to us that they're 14 years old which is older than i had thought they would be yeah so that was just one thing that i was thinking about yeah these kids are teenagers they can handle all the horrible things they're having to deal with now <laughs> better than 10 year olds so that, so that kind of changed how i was thinking about the whole like rachel tobias crush thing 
uh, since they're a little bit older yeah. than I, I had been thinking that they were. They both hit puberty. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. They both had the talk. You know, <laughs> when a hawk loves a girl very much, uh, <laughs> the girl lays an egg. <laughs> I think the hawk flies over and fertilizes it. <laughs> so, yep, that's exactly the biology of, of, of bird procreation. Yeah, you end up with a harpy. A harpy is what's born from that union. Not to veer off this fascinating subject, but I'm surprised that we didn't talk about, that none of us mentioned, the sort of juxtaposition of the Yerks and the Controllers with the Animorphs. They're both essentially two beings in one. And the relationship with the hosts is completely different. With the Yerks, it's a completely dominating parasitical um, entity that controls another being, takes over the mind, takes over the body, and it's all about enforcing the will Mm -hmm. and stamping down the host's mind and consciousness um, to exert your control and your power. Because they're nothing but a means to an end. They're just a vehicle. But with the Animorphs, when they acquire, as they call it, an animal, there's this innate respect for whatever it is they're going to turn into. They don't treat um, the animal mind that they're going to be sharing any any less than themselves, which I don't know where my end point of this was. I just thought it was no, it, an interesting sort of obvious juxtaposition it's an that they're doing. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel, and there are moments where they actually do, like the animorphs actually do have to kind of push down the animal brain and kind of resist the animal brain. Um, and it's an interesting sort of combination because you know technically they acquire all the dna of that animal whenever they use their morph so for all intents and purposes they are that animal when they morph except they still have their human brain in there so they kind of are you know controlling an animal in a similar sense to the Yerks. I mean like the animal is temporary it's a temporary clone basically of the original animal but like, and they don't occupy the animal's actual body. They just right, right. The original animal is still existent, but like, basically, for a time, you know, Rachel was that cat, and she was like influencing her own will over that cat. Which is, you know, you there's all kinds of little ethical nuances in there. Like, how is that? How is it ethical to like bring these creatures temporarily into existence and then, you know, can force your will over them and then have them disappear after two hours? Um, yeah, it's it's a temporary clone, essentially. Yeah, that's what it is. And you're right. We saw a lot more of how the Yerks controller dynamic works, especially with Chapman. We saw both of the Chapmans resist whenever Visser Three was like, "Bring in your daughter. We're going to make her a controller too." And both of them, like, like Chapman resisted. He fought back control over the yerk in his head long enough to be like, if you do this to my daughter, I will never stop fighting you. One twitch of the eye, one spasm in, like, a parent-teacher conference, and people will think I'm insane and have me, like, taken to a psychiatric ward and I'll be useless to you. Which was a great, like, threat from him. It's not like, I know I can't beat you, but I can make your life inconvenient enough that it's not worth it. Yeah, they and and that's it's a, it's another great way to like kind of flesh out the side characters. Um I, in a lesser story it would be like 
oh, he's the vice principal and he's the villain and he gives he gave the kids guff before he was an alien. So who cares if he's a controller now? Yeah. But no, we see that he loves his daughter and he wants to protect her. And he's trying his best to do that by stalling Visser 3 in his plans um, of making his daughter a controller as well. Yeah, I was really I was really not expecting that. And it seems like in every Animorph book they hit me in the feels because <laughs> I I definitely believed that very cliche, like quintessential, oh, he's you know, the vice principal, he's a bad guy. He just doesn't like kids. Like, uh, you know, of course he would join the Yerks. And to find out that like he he didn't join the Yerks willingly and that I mean, you know that Chapman knows that I mean he is inhabiting you know he is the body that a very high up yerk is inhabiting so he's clearly seeing a lot of what goes on behind the scenes so i don't think chapman can really have any illusions that the yerks are not going to succeed in taking over humanity so the fact that he is willing to give up his his body and his livelihood just to buy his daughter time you know he he clearly can't operate under the assumption that it's it's going to protect her forever just really made me emotional that he's willing to do this and that like you said he would fight so hard just to give her that that extra time um before she'll be taken over the way that all of humanity is on track to be taken over yeah really affected me like there are no real victories that the animorphs have had in these first mm-hmm. two books they save one person in book 1 some random woman who we haven't seen or heard from again and failed to save Tom, who was like their main target and almost lost Cassie and Tobias was forced into his hawk form forever and now in this one they try and gather intel from Mr. 3 and Chapman and they don't get that much information they just like basically find out a little bit more of what they already knew and almost get captured and fail to save Chapman and like almost die again. Like this is a series of recurring failures. These kids really are outmatched. And I've, I've seen some people online talk about, Oh, oh, these books get a little too repetitive, but like if the repetition is these kids just barely getting away with their lives, I'm on board because like, that's that's subversive for a ch- like a supposedly young adult series, you know. Usually, it's like, it's like I was gonna say, it's also war. Like yeah. they Applegate, um, both of them, the the duo, they've expressed like you know it's a it's a war story, and within the confines of it, of course, being like this huge sci fi concept, they wanted to try and be as truthful to like the experience of war as they could. So, if the series follows this general tra- general trajectory of, you know, small victories or no victories, then that's kind of, hey, that, I mean, that's war. That war doesn't, you know, you don't win at the end and like, oh, yay, like, we did it. It's just, it's, it's on to the, it's on to the next mission. It's, it's on to like waiting to see the enemy's next move again. It's on to coping with more loss. Yeah. Um, et cetera, et cetera. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Hmm. Also, we learn that Yerks have names, and we also learn that they're 
I can't remember if this was mentioned in the first book, but they're not really a hive mind. They have their own kind of oh yeah thoughts and and feelings and opinions. There's a hierarchy, um, and apparently yeah. that like each one has a name and a number, and it's like that their name categorizes them. So there's like Visser three, and he's trying to become Visser one. So like. It's it's not necessarily names. It's more like a ranking system, which is interesting. Yeah. What, what were the um the Chapman Yerks called? Uh, Lord, their there's, name. There's so many alien words in this series. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably learn to take better notes. I, I would <laughs> have. <going forward. laughs> I, I would have, and I will in the future. But like I, tonight, I just kind of threw things together. Oh, oh um, Ennis or Inus? Yeah, I yeah. think. It, um, let me. Wiki. You mean Ennis Del Mar? <laughs> yes, that's Brokeback it. Mountain. Ling, 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 ling. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's Ennis two two six. Yeah, that's the um the uh, name or label or ranking of the the Chapman Yerks, and um they're they're not a fan of Isser three. No, there's they, uh, they kind of hate the bastard. <laughs> there's a lot of infighting. Oh, we didn't even talk about the fact that like Visser Three has a okay. So we we talked about how in the last episode how Visser Three is an Andalot controller and he can morph into animals. He has a morph that is like of the natural predator to Yerks. Like it can suck a Yerk out of a controller body and eat it, which is horrifying to the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, it's called the Vanarchs, and they, uh, Visser refers to it as the Yerkbane. Yeah. It's, it's a, like, that's a great addition, because it shows that, like, Visser 3 isn't just ruthless to, like, the enemy. He is an absolute tyrant. He is completely enjoying his control over this Andalite body and abusing that power even amongst his own kind. Visser 3 is, like, a wonderfully cartoonish villain. Every time he's just like, yeah, just murder everything, kill everything in a 30-mile radius, I don't care. What's that, a cat? Shoot the cat, we don't have time for this. Like, Mm -hmm. he is an absolute bastard, and I love it. Yeah, and, um, they, so far with him, they've, they struck a good balance between him being, like, incompetent for the sake of the plot, because there's not counting the spinoffs, 54 of these damn things. Yeah. And so they strike this balance between him being like incompetent. So the plot and the story can keep functioning, but also a genuine threat. I don't know if it's necessarily Um, incompetent. It's more like he is not familiar with earth and he kind of makes us because he's assuming that these are Andalites they're fighting. He still doesn't know that the Animorphs are human. He's like, making assumptions that, oh, I'm fighting Andalites, so I'm going to treat them like Andalites, and I don't need to learn that much about Earth and what goes on on Earth, because what are they going to turn into that my gigantic, like, fire-breathing monsters and alien creatures can't beat? Mm-hmm. So he's just incredibly arrogant. And will that be his downfall? Absolutely. We don't, oh, we don't know. We'll have to keep reading to find out. To kind of backtrack a little to the um, emotional hook that is the Chapman family for the first book and half of the second book. We're kind of under the assumption that vice principal Chapman willingly offered himself to the Yerks, but he didn't. Cause as we just discussed, like he, 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 he took one for the team just so he could continue to protect his daughter more. So mm-hmm. 
that was a nice little flip of the script as well. Like at first we were sad. Oh, like she lost her, her parents. That that's sad. But we're still we still had that assumption that possibly he was one of those willing hosts. But as it turns out, he wasn't. His wife was, which is intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't. I don't know if it necessarily gives a specific explanation as to why. It just says that mm-hmm. she had some kind of weakness that she wanted the Yerks to fix. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting dynamic where, like, his wife had already given herself over and he gave himself over to protect his daughter, not just from the Yerks, but kind of from his wife, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot more going on with Chapman than, like, I expected there to be. And I think part of the reason that it subverted expectations is because we're getting this from the perspective of, like, teenagers. And even though this series doesn't really do too much, like, oh, teen life, going to school, doing homework stuff, like, it it comes up every now and then, but it's not, like, the focus of these books. There are moments where we get glimpses into, oh, yeah, these are teens viewing the world because they... The whole time, like, they talk about, like, ah, Chapman was really, you know, riding my ass about this or that before he was a year controlled. Now he's even worse. Like, they kind of already hated Chapman. These kids did. And we're supposed to kind of just like, oh, yeah, assume that Chapman was a bad guy. But it's just like, no, he was just like a vice principal. He was just like an authority figure that they didn't like because they're rebellious little teenagers. He wasn't a bad person before. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't put the kids on a pedestal like like their worldview is automatically like the correct one or that they're necessarily the most reliable narrators of their own story. And, and they're not unreliable narrators. It's not that blatant, but But they're not perfect. But yeah. they're not perfect. There's there seems to be a trend now because um, we've all read the first three books with the the hurtful emotional twist of of the story. The first one was <laughs> the first book was losing Tom after just saving him and Tobias getting stuck as the hawk. The second one was Melissa losing her parents and learning that Chapman was actually trying to buy her wasn't the bad guy and trying to buy her time. The third one has its own, which I think. This will make a good segue into the third book if um, we don't have anything else to say about the second one. Erica, we wanna kinda... Erica, any final thoughts on the second book before we jump into the third? I don't think so. Okay. What were you going to say about the third book, Tyler? The third books, which is from Tobias's perspective, yeah! yeah um, sad boy! Sad, hot sad boy. boy hot. Not only does he become suicidal... Oh god, yeah. Um, there's this small subplot with a, another hawk yeah that is threaded throughout the book let's, let's which i we'll, we'll backtrack and we'll yeah, build to that let's jump into the plot real quick for the third book so uh tobias who has been stuck as a hawk uh ever since their first big mission like went horribly wrong free he starts off by freeing this female hawk from like a car commercial or something like she was like a caged mascot for like this. Car yeah. For a local dealership. Yeah. It was like, which like, what the hell? Um, but he frees her. She flies off. The Animorphs then discover through Tobias. Cause he was flying through the air and he notices like, there's like a shimmer in the air, uh, that there is a gigantic spaceship that goes off into the mountains like every week. So they decide to go investigate and, they find out that this gigantic spaceship is like collecting water from a lake up in the mountains to take back to the alien mothership. 
Uh, it's like a freight truck, basically, that carries supplies uh, up to the mothership. And they decide, hey, we need to destroy this thing or find a way to slow it down or stop it or something so that this will, like, interfere with their whole operation. And throughout this entire thing, like, Tobias is just the saddest, most depressing. God, it's so hard to just read Tobias's story because the whole time he's just like, I used to be human once. I've forgotten my face. <laughs> it's just, it's. Yeah, this is, this is the most character driven of the three so far. And, um, while, while a mission is definitely a part of the book, the main focus is just being in Tobias's head as he tries to cope with being an animal for the rest of his life. Yeah. So, like, he's not... At this point, it's been, like, almost a month, and Tobias points out that he's living in Jake's attic, and he's, like, eating leftovers from Jake because, like, he doesn't want to give in to his hunting instinct and, like, let the hawk take over his brain there, but he's constantly fighting this instinct to hunt. He's also, like, constantly fighting this instinct now that he's freed that female hawk and he comes across her a few times to literally have sex with a female hawk, which I guess answers the question we had earlier of how long, if you're if you're trapped in a morph, how long is it acceptable before you want to have sex with animals? I guess it's a month. <laughs> it is apparently a um, month. <laughs> they, they don't get that explicit with his attraction to the hawk. It's more of like a, I feel this pull to this hawk. Like I just, I I feel this instinct. Like I just want to go with her. I just, I kind of, I want to be with her, but I smell her cloaca on the wind. But because we're, you know, adults who have been, you know, raised on the internet and the perversity of it, of course we automatically jumped in. Tobias wants to fuck that hawk. What else is it? (laughs) What, what other reason would a male hawk want Uh, to go to a female hawk? It it definitely, it definitely is sexual because even at the end, he's, he's thinking, you know, do hawks mate for life, which they do. I looked it up. Oh God, that's sad. Yeah. And I mean, screw it. Let's, let's, let's go down our musings about the moral implications of a person having a human brain and an animal brain in an animal body mating with an animal, an animal? that isn't an animorph. What, what's, 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 the, what's the accept? What's, what's the, what's the answer? How are we, how are we feeling about that? Five minutes after you found out you're stuck. Yeah, Five that minutes. was, that was mine last time. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't personally see a problem with it because we see so much of how Tobias is struggling not to let that animal mind take over. Yeah. And not only is a month so long in an animal's brain, but you can really see how he's struggling with the fact that it's really for his friend's sake that he's trying to hang on. Yeah. Because, you know, he's he's really like, you know, letting Jake bring him the food in the attic, staying in the attic. Um not even telling Jake, you know, that he can't eat the vegetables and things that he brings him, that he can only eat meat and that he would prefer to be hunting. So I I think it's pretty acceptable, honestly. He's trying so hard, but ultimately, the longer he's in that body, the more hawk he becomes. Yeah. Which is very sad because Rachel and Tobias have a really emotional scene in this book where he tells her that he well not only does he not remember what his eye color is at the beginning of the book he's essentially forgotten what he even looked like yeah. as a human 
Mm-hmm. And she and reveals really that, emotional. She reveals that she yeah. had a picture of him, which he didn't know, which just like yeah. strengthens this whole like, oh, they were crushing on each other before this, and now they'll never be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh. so messed up. But it's fine because he almost got hot Loeka, but didn't because he almost got hot Loeka, but he didn't because death. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, we'll get there. Let's uh, let me weigh in on the whole: can an animorph bang a regular animal? Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know where I land yet. Um, it brings up weird questions of consent. Um, <laughs> like if you have part human mind, part animal mind, the other animal may see you as another animal, but you're not just that other animal. So, like. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's a weird thing to talk about hey. and like go down that rabbit hole in your mind and be like, well, you know, Tyler, I'm going to let you in on a little secret with the exception of maybe like bonobos and some other ape species. There's not really a notion of consent amongst the animal yeah. kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> like, look at ducks. They basically rape every each other all the time. Their, their entire breeding system is basically built on rape. It's horrifying. Yeah, even, even, even elephants, who are incredibly intelligent animals, rape. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. alarming. And dolphins. Yeah. Nature's horrifying. Nature's uh, terrible. Yeah, they, yeah, it's completely amoral. They have no ethics. Uh, so if you're stuck in an animal body forever, you either try and hang on to your humanity like Tobias is here and become a super depressed, I want to kill myself person, or you say, fuck it, I'm a dog now. I'm going to go hump another dog. I'm going to go hump a lady dog. Yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of what we do in the shadows uh, rules. What <laughs> did you do that? Six. Six. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and he was a vampire, and he probably had total control of that. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, what I love about what this third book hammers home is the horror that all of these kids face with a morph. Like, they might acquiring and, like, figuring out a different morph, but it always leaves an impact. It's never just like, I turn into this, and then I turn back, and it was fine. Um, last book, when uh, Rachel was the shrew, apparently she might have possibly eaten those maggots she was smelling, because she wakes up from a nightmare yeah. about eating them, and she she vomits. In the first book, um, I- because he won't, let us, he won't let us forget it, Jake, when he ate the spider as a lizard, and now with Tobias, it's 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 funny how all of like the trauma of morphing like comes down to th- the base instinct of the animal taking over, and it always revolves around f- eating and, and preying upon something else. The whole book, Tobias is fighting this urge to just give in to the hawk and hunt. When he does, it sends him spiraling, yeah. <laughs> absolutely spiraling. Literally, so much so, so yeah. <laughs> so much so that he no, there, there's there's no two ways around it. He tries to kill himself. Yeah. Erica, you were going to say something. I think it's really fascinating that we get to see how much trauma they're having. Like each and every one of them has nightmares about their their morphing. And I'm pretty certain that they confirm that she ate those maggots because she's throwing up and her sister says that's so strange i thought i saw something white in there like string or something Ugh. and i'm like yeah little sister that's maggots that's horrifying mm-hmm. 
And you know, in another series, they'd play this off as just like a joke. Funny. Like, oh, yeah. he ate a spider. Ha ha. But in this one, it's like, I can feel the squirming of its legs in my stomach. Mm-hmm. It goes to, like, there's a lot of body horror stuff in this from like, there is. just regular nature stuff. It's like watching like the most unsettling nature documentaries. <laughs> But yeah, when Tobias, he finally does give in to his instinct to hunt, he kills like a rat and eats it, and it drives him insane. He flies to the mall to find Rachel, and on the way he basically tries to like dive bomb into the windows and kill himself. The only reason he doesn't is because somebody opens the door last minute, flies into the mall, and he tries to like go through the skylight because he's in a panic And he's like, I'm just going to let the hot brain take over and it's going to try and fly through the skylight, even though my human brain knows, like, if it does that, I'll die. And he only Mm -hmm. survives because Marco, like, throws a baseball through the skylight to let him live. Like, Tobias was, Tobias literally tries to kill himself in this book. And it's, it's Mm -hmm. incredibly messed up and sad and dark. It's like, oh. You're just watching this kid lose his grip on his humanity. And after that, he spends, like, a week just letting the hawk take control. Every time he has memories of his human life, he suppresses them and lets the hawk brain take over. Like, these kids have it rough! These kids have it so rough in this series! Yeah, it it goes back to the parallel between the controllers and the Animorphs. You know, it's, it's loss of identity, it's dehumanization... How did they sell this Even though- shit next to Judy B. Jones? <laughs> they do. Yeah, and Captain <laughs> and, Underpants. And the Babysitter's Club. And- oh my god. All the- Babysitter's Club with Little Sister. Uh, green eggs and ham. What if that green egg belonged to a hawk that, that was also a huge boy? <laughs> it seems like it's a very like well-kept secret that these are just so... I don't think a lot of parents, if they really knew the subject matter would have been okay with it but but since there isn't explicit sex and they're saying let's kick butt and what the instead of cursing i think it kind of slipped under the radar there are so many like young adult series like hunger games and such where it's like oh man we're gonna touch on topics of death and like child endangerment and stuff and whatnot but like this series was doing that long before the young adult turn towards mm-hmm. let's get real dark with this shit like this was the mid 90s when this came out i'm just i'm amazed yeah that this like yeah was like almost allowed during the 90s you know like this was clearly mm-hmm. targeted towards younger audiences but it hits on so much dark traumatizing shit uh, yeah it's it's, it's mind-blowing to think about because i was i was watching an interview one of one of our competitors <laughs> was doing with uh, Michael Grant. He was just talking about the publication and writing process of doing these books. And like, at, at one point he just kind of says a little aside and he's like, and we were just like, we were getting away with murder. With <laughs> these books. Like, 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 like the shit we were writing in these books. Like, how did we get away with this? Like, how did the publisher just... <laughs> Did they just Consider, considering the demographic it was for? <laughs> did the publishers just see like the covers and say, "Yeah, kid turning into a dolphin, just slapping into the Scholastic series." We don't care. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. It's 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 really fun jumping into this as an adult, having missed it as a kid, because you understand why it's it's stuck with people so long. Yeah, you know. People don't just have, like, nostalgia for it, like, oh, I read those as a kid, and they were so fun. 
they like the stories and the characters and the themes have stuck with the fans for so long. Like that's that's why they love it. It's not just like a um a hazy memory of, you know, oh, you know, these silly books that I read as a kid. It's like it, it's the impact that they remember, yeah. not not just, you know, the nostalgia of like a, a simpler time as a kid going to the book fair. Yeah, Tobias goes into a spiral for a while. He finally does come back to himself when he I think he notices the ship going by again. Or no, no, no. Mm-hmm. He's actually flying in the mountains and he sees a person being chased by one of the hork which are one of the alien species controlled by the Yerks. And uh, mm-hmm. he saves their life. And like, see, seeing this person being chased at first, like, it's it's really messed up because he just sees it as like, oh, there's a predator chasing its prey. Like, it doesn't even register as like, wait, that's a human being in danger down there. But then he remembers, like, wait, that hork is being controlled. That's not, this isn't natural. This is something unnatural. This is wrong. And it snaps his human brain back into place long enough for him to, like, go back to his friends, be like, hey, we've got to stop the Yerks. We've got to go and try and stop that ship. Oh, gosh, to backpedal a bit before we move forward. We didn't even touch on the scene where all of them almost got trapped mid-morph. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that that's what I wanted to mention when I my brain farted for the like 80th time. That it's another thing that adds to Tobias's um trauma and his, his and his hard time is he he he's putting on a brave face for his friends, but he doesn't like being around them when they morph back because they get to be human again and they they try to be sensitive to him, but they don't always quite catch themselves. So Marco, um, that ass. Fucking Marco. Uh-huh. Um, they almost all got stuck as wolves. Well, yeah. and they almost got stuck as wolves, and he rushes to tell them, you have to morph back now. And they start morphing back, and they get stuck for a moment, which is, like, even uh, more horrifying than being stuck in a wolf body. They're, like, these half-human, half-wolf mutants that wouldn't be able to fit in anywhere. And it's this horrifying uh-huh. moment where you just think, oh, God, these children are going to die here. They're going to be stuck as these wolf men for the rest of their lives. It's horrifying. And they barely get out of it, which just adds, like, a whole other layer of not only is there a risk that you might get stuck in an animal body for the rest of your life, there's now a risk of you might get stuck mid-morph and be like this horrifying, horrifying abomination forever. Yeah, and Tobias, he doesn't he doesn't know how to cope all the time with his friends coming out of a morph and, you know, looking fine. And when, when they got stuck for a second and finally was able to pull through, they all were like, yes, oh, we did it. Congratulations. And as glad as he was that they were fine, it also, he was like, ah, shit, like seeing them like celebrate like that, happy that they're not stuck, like that fucks my head. And he just, he just flies off because, you know, he's as much as he's trying to put on a brave face, like he, he, he can't control it. Yeah. Because he, he, he tells himself, you know, he, it's not so bad being a hawk. Like, I get to do this and I get to do that. No homework. But every time he, he, yeah, I could, I could go see a ball game or a concert without paying a ticket anytime I want to. Anytime he lulls himself into a sense of security, something happens that breaks it. Yeah. Poor fucking Tobias. Poor fucking Tobias. That should be on a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> 
Lord fucking Tobias. That'll be our first merch shirt whenever we get, you know, to that point. Yeah. And I also think because of the fact that they're so deep in the animal brain, I mean, it's really Tobias who is urging them, you guys have to turn back. You are out of time. You have to turn back. They don't really understand, like, the urgency of it. Yeah. And it's it's so, like, stressful and triggering for him to have to watch this happen. It's also interesting in this book because we see everything from Tobias's perspective. So instead of seeing, like, them switching between human to morph to human to morph, we get him in morph the whole time. So he's in a constant struggle with this one animal brain as opposed to, like, struggling between multiple different animal brains. So it's a much more in-depth of, like, what is it like to be a hawk all the time instead of, like, what's yeah. it like to be a shrew for ten minutes, which is an interesting switch up. And it's also interesting to see him see him watching his friends deal with other animal brains from the outside because, like, instead of seeing their internal struggle, he's just seeing, like, hey, why is Jake pissing on everything as a wolf? Like, what is he doing? <laughs> I was just going to say, like, one of the, the funniest moment in the three books so far is when they first morph in the wolves and uh, Marco and Jake get into a stupid pissing match, not literally, but also literally, about who's going to be the alpha wolf and Jake wins out and, like, he takes Mark and everything and they all just start howling for no reason. Yeah. They don't know why. Like, first Jake starts and then they all start going. And Spice is like, what? And they're like, we don't know. It just felt like how? <laughs> it just felt good. Uh, another little weird ethical question to throw in there. Jake and Marco have a little thought about who gets to be a male wolf because they say that like the males will fight for dominance if they're both males. So one of them has to become a female wolf. It ends up being Marco. And like... My question is, do, like, if you switch into an animal brain of a different gender, like, what would that be like to have your sexuality suddenly change as well? Like, oh, now Marco is attracted to male wolves, not just wolves, but now he's attracted to the opposite sex that he normally would be. Yeah, that's, um, I didn't think of that for some reason. It's a forceful um, change of sexuality. That's it's kind of messed up, too, on its own level. <laughs> I wonder if they'll get into that at some point in the future. I do not know. I doubt that they would go that, but then again, if he said he got away with murder, maybe. Should we uh, jump back into the plot? Yeah, so they go on their mission. They're just like, okay, we're going to... Their plan is to turn into fish, which is yes, hilarious. I love it. They turn into fish so that they will get sucked up into the big alien spaceship that's carrying water back to the mothership, and... They will try and stop it from the inside, which is not a great plan, to be honest, because they keep stressing Aww. about how big this ship is and how, like, horrifyingly massive and, like, uh, like how are they going to stop it from the inside when they get in there? They have no idea. They're basically <laughs> no just like, we're just going to turn into fish and see what happens. Um, <laughs> their, <and> conclusion, <laughs> their conclusion, their conclusion, their hopeful outcome of the mission makes sense. Like, yeah. if we find a, if we find a way to, like, decloak it or something and like people see it like there's no way that the Yerks can hide from something this big so if we can do that then like this could all be over but like they they, they go from the beginning of the plan which is we'll be fish and get sucked up into the ship to the hopeful outcome with no consideration yeah. for the middle portion of the plan. Can anybody read Yerk? Highlights that they're just still just kids. Like, yeah, where? How do they know they're not going to get ground up into chunks as soon as they get sucked up? Yeah. Or how do they know that 
you know, they're going to have an opportunity to morph back in time mm-hmm. once they get sucked up, yeah. which obviously <laughs> the book the book takes advantage of that. Yes. Uh, so the plan, as always, fails miserably. <laughs> These kids cannot catch a break. They're really not doing a good job of stopping the Yerks. Uh, they all get sucked up into this big tank and they can't get the lid open. So they're just trapped in the ship, except for Tobias, who's just like flying around. And... Uh, the ship starts to take off, and all of the like, there's all these other ships around as well. Visitor Three himself comes down because he's like, "I know that morphs are out here, kill every animal on sight. You know, I know they're gonna try and mess with us." And Tobias ends up like surrounded by ships. The only reason they won't shoot him is because he's like on top of like the freight ship, and they don't want to like damage it. And all of his friends are trapped inside, and there's, oh my god, it's so fucking dark, because Rachel contacts him, and she's like, Tobias, listen, we're not gonna get out of here, don't let us be taken alive, can't find a way to destroy the ship with us inside, kill us, please! And Tobias is like, I'm gonna go fly at the front of this thing and see what I can do, and... He manages to get a hold of, like, one of the Dracon rays, which is, like, a disintegrator gun from, like, one of the aliens. He takes it to the front. He shoots it through the bridge, kills, like, the pilots and stuff, does a lot of damage to the ship. He actually manages to destroy the ship with, like, one little Dracon pistol, like, which, holy shit, those things are powerful. Um, Uh, Obviously, these Dracon beams are... OP as hell. Yeah, they just disintegrate everything on touch. Um, and all of his friends come flying out of the ship where he blew it up, and they manage to switch into bird forms and barely, barely fly away, but not before the female hawk that he saved earlier, the female hawk he wanted to bone, uh gets caught up in the blast. She gets shot by one of the alien ships that's chasing them. So it wasn't accidentally it wasn't an accident either. No. It was mm-hmm. because he was in a hawk. This because he's a hawk, Vista 3 is like, shoot all the birds. So they start shooting all the birds and the female hawk gets shot. Yeah. And it's just th- that that extra dose of pain and sadness. Oh boy. <laughs> like every book has had so far. So I wonder what extra dose of sadness we can expect from the fourth book. Yeah, which which that's a great point. That sadness is actually what kind of helps Tobias now focus on his humanity because he's like, if I were just a hawk, I wouldn't be sad. You know, I, I might miss her in the sense of like losing a potential mate, but I wouldn't have this feeling of actual mourning of loss. That's part of what's keeping me connected to my humanity and it's just so damn depressing that Tobias's strongest connection to his humanity is his sadness <laughs> like oh yeah, yeah that, that's how um, he comes to terms with the fact that hey I'm still human mm-hmm. it's because I'm so sad <laughs> oh happy times in Animorph land mm-hmm. we also saw that hawk's fucking leg blow off before it died like yeah. again these are just it's just brutal it was like it only got half like it got halfway shot by the beam and like half like its wing and leg got blown off and it fell to its mm-hmm. death it didn't even get like a clean vaporization yep. oh god yeah, and, and rachel offers to like go and try to find the body so they could bury it yeah mm-hmm. and device <sighs> is just like it got fucking eaten already it's too late <laughs> that, that that's how nature is 
because I, I know nature better than any of you guys mm-hmm. so far. Um, uh, God, um, we haven't talked about the only side character we've talked about. Not not side; they're not all side characters, but we haven't talked about anybody else aside from the narrators and Jake. We should talk about Marco and Cassie. Yes, um, Marco's still was- an ass. <laughs> Marco's still an ass. He's becoming um, more of an ass almost. He's becoming one. more of an ass, which is irritating. Um because I wonder what that's gonna be like when we get to his book. Mm-hmm. Um he has his moments, you know, he he's the one who saves Tobias by breaking the window in the mall. So good on you, Marco, for doing that. Like that was a bro move. But his his fear is is just making him such a confrontational dick. Like and not even just his fear. He, he's just an asshole to everybody all the time. He's he's always got a snarky quip. He's always got some sass. He's got a and it, at least most of the characters give it back to him, which makes it more tolerable. Mm-hmm. But um, he's probably the one thorn in in the series aside so far. Like we we we've gotten his motivation in the first book, but so far that hasn't been enough. In my opinion, yeah, to 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 carry it through these other two books so far, we haven't seen so, his home life. We've just had him talk about it, so it's not as like strong a connection yet. I'm sure by the time we get to his book, things will turn around with him. But so far, um, he's really the only detriment uh, to the series. Erica, the only real flaw that I have. Yeah, Erica, what's your thoughts on Marco? think so too like i've i don't i haven't found him to be more annoying he's been the same amount of annoying which is quite bad the whole time but it's interesting to me because it seems like in the second book the other animorphs kind of give him a pass on it like they're like oh if if your dad comes first if there's any time that you should be with your dad instead of with us saving the world you should do that and i'm like well that can be literally any time like, that is a weird cop-out that you were giving him. Yeah, his, his um, whole reason is he shouldn't die. It's not like... Yeah, uh, exactly. Which is a valid point. None of them should. But I don't understand why, just because his dad is a single parent, they're like, any time your dad comes first before what we're doing. Uh, how how more so than Rachel? Does Rachel have a dad? We haven't seen her dad. Uh her parents are divorced, I think they bring up in the same Yeah, book. right, right. They said that he doesn't live there. So, yeah. in essence, his mom, her mom is a single mom. So, I, I don't, again, see yeah. why he's such a special snowflake that it sucks. They shouldn't have to do this. They shouldn't have to risk their lives. None of them should be put in the position where they could get hurt, let alone die. But they just kind of just give him a... He's the one who's always, like, the hesitant one, the one who's complaining. And then in the second book, they tell him, that's fine. If there's ever a time that you can be with your dad, do that first. I'm like, I he lives with his dad. That can be every day. Yeah. And again, his whole motivation for not wanting to die is that he doesn't want his dad to kill himself after because his dad, mm-hmm. his mom drowned or something. She died. 
and now his dad is like super duper depressed and he's like if i die my dad dies and it's like well kid um that sucks that's real rough and i'm sure we'll get into that whenever we get your narration but also like if you if any of you kids die the earth is going to be taken over by aliens so right like that's a- and that might still happen you yeah. guys are just trying to do your best while you wait for the andalites to come back in a year you hope yeah they're really they're really not going to win this fight at the rate they're going. They're basically just mm-hmm. buying time. But yeah, Marco is just he's he's definitely the weak link of the group. There's moments where he can be kind of nice to have like a comic relief because this series is super duper heavy. But like he's always like the worst kind of comic relief where he's like completely ignoring other people's like serious emotions and everything it's not like he's trying to like make everybody laugh it's more like hey i'm going to belittle you for having horrible traumatic things happen to you like hey tobias how's it feel to be a hawk huh how's it you eat any mice lately i don't know if i can hang out with a mouse eater haha it's like what the fuck yeah the fuck kid He's stuck as a hawk forever. He wants to bone a lady hawk. You're, you can't be making fun of this shit. He tried to kill mm-hmm. himself. Yeah. Oh, it's especially hard, I think, in the third book to see the way that he interacts with Tobias and that there's never really an apology. No. Like, he doesn't admit any wrong and he doesn't seem like he's going to change in any way like kids do. They just kind of sidestep the entire awkwardness that happened yeah yeah there's this there's this kind of implicit understanding just how the story is told that because he's still sticking with them and because he you know still goes on the missions with them that you know he cares and you know that he's gonna stick by him but what i think what would make his sense of humor and his kind of casual cruelty work is if we had a bit more insight into his interpersonal relationship with everybody. We haven't gotten a sense of like, what's it like specifically with him and Jake? What's it like specifically with him and Cassie? He just has the same sort of baseline interaction with everybody. Yeah. Which is just giving them a hard time. I I definitely want to read his book just so we can like get more of like, what's going on in your head besides I don't want to die. You know, (laughs) speaking of Cassie though, Let's talk about Cassie for a minute. What are your all's thoughts on Cassie? The fourth book is about her, and I just started it. I'm not going to get into any... I mean, I just started it, so there's really nothing to tell. She's she's interesting, but so far, it seems like she's had the least to do. Yeah. She keeps, mm-hmm. she keeps getting pushed to the side, I feel like. She's, she's, she's the knowledge base of the group. Like, she's... Yeah. The with the animal knowledge and can give them, you know, basically exposition. Yeah. yeah she's like um, the Eliza Thornberry who comes in here with the animal facts. Yeah. But other than that, there hasn't been much to her that I've been able to read into. No, I, she, I think it's, it's I not think really a drawback be- so much. as just kind of like, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's get more of her already. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I th- I get the sense that she's maybe the more mature and responsible one in the group, just because of what we do see in her interactions. Right. She's very level-headed. When they're getting ready to try and catch the cat, she's like, well, I mean, Tomcats can be violent. And Rachel's like, no! It ends up getting horribly scratched. Yeah. 
And Marco gets really frustrated when they're trying to catch the fish. And she's like, this doesn't just take five seconds. Like, you have to be patient. Yeah. So I like her personality in that she almost seems like a little bit like she can be the group mom, which is a dynamic that I very much relate to. (laughs) So... <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing more from her, but we we really get to see her. I feel like even less than Marco because Marco's constantly piping up with his "I don't want to die" or "We shouldn't do this" yeah. or you know. Uh, whereas, so Cassie kind of is the the one who gets the least of the spotlight. I definitely want to see more of her because, like, I I kind of feel like she's also where she's so connected with animals and everything that this whole morphing thing is most a blessing for her. Like she, because mm-hmm. she mentions that a bit in the first book. Like we could save endangered species. We could learn what it's like for these animals. Like there's so much good we could do with this, aside from just stopping the year. Right. And like I, I want to see more of that because they kind of haven't addressed it since then. Like you said, she's been a lot of like explaining things and sort of the level head of the group, but we don't really get to see like what's her motivation for being with the group aside from, you know obviously we want to save the world and hey i like animals but like i really want to i really want to get into her head and see like what what's her reason for being here you know like what is she getting out of being an animorph i think there's even though there hasn't been enough focus on her through the other characters eyes so far i think there's been just enough where we can determine like as you said she's the one who benefits the most from having these powers she's the one who enjoys just the sheer fact that she can turn into an animal the most she's the one who's most curious about it she's the best at it she's the most skilled at morphing so yeah she's kind of the one that's all in on it as far as you know just being able to become animals and what that you know feels like for her whereas with rachel she gets off on it but in a completely different way it's it's not in a more like harmonious way like um wow i just crapped on her name Cassie? Cassie, yeah. I, I was going to say Cassie, but I'm like, that's wrong. That's not right. Yeah. Melissa, uh, Joe Hawk. With, uh, with, yeah. with, with Cassie, it's more harmonious, but with Rachel, it's like, I can turn into an elephant and, and destroy this car dealer's cars so Tobias can free these this, this hawk. It would have been it, nice. It's not, it, it's not about being the animal with Rachel, it's about the power. The power. Yeah. With 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 Cassie, it's about being the animal yeah. and feeling closer to to nature. So I'm sure because she's the next book, I'm sure that's that's what they're going to lean into right. with her perspective. It would have been nice to see her like help out with the whole like saving the hawk mission that Tobias and Rachel went on at the beginning of book three because I feel like that would have been exactly what she would be using her powers for is like helping animals in need. Any final thoughts on book three before we jump into review review? I would say book three. I don't know if book three or book one are my favorite so far. I think book one is still my favorite just because it manages to put in so much. It does. Yeah. Like it establishes the premise. It establishes the stakes. It establishes the group dynamics. And it gives us like multiple morphs. Like Jake turns into a dog and he turns into a lizard and he turns into a tiger. And then you also get everyone else's morphs. And you also get like the scene with them like trying to get the morphs in the zoo. Like they managed to cram so much into book one. Hmm. 
and like in a way that doesn't feel like super duper rushed or yeah inconvenient like it, book one is a great foundation for this series it is i think it's definitely my favorite as well yeah but tobias being sad is always uh, I, I don't know if i'd call it entertaining but it's definitely like an experience that i have so book three is definitely book two has definitely been the low point but i wouldn't call it bad it's just it was yeah. a, it was a slower smaller story yeah none of the three have been bad at all so far yeah um i wonder uh, i wonder what the first book we're not gonna like is that's gonna be that's gonna be an interesting probably the marco discussion. one <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe not maybe we'll be like hey yeah this redeemed marco we were so wrong it stands to reason that after He's before character. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy it stands the reason that book five is going to be his book, so... Yeah. We're not that far away. Uh, we did not talk about the Vaxons. The, you mean the Taxons? The Taxons, thank you, yeah. the Taxons. We did not talk about them, and they... It continually amazes me how much alien brutality there is oh, yeah. in this series. So we're introduced to... We're introduced to this alien species, and they are disgusting. Yeah, they're like physically. They're gigantic centipedes with like bulbous, jello-like red eyes, Mm -hmm. and And creepy, exactly creepy legs that make it so that they're about six feet tall or higher when they're standing. And we're pretty quickly introduced to them, and we're told that this species was willingly taken over by the Yurks. Which, again, blew my mind. Uh, And also that this species is incredibly violent, willing to eat any kind of meat. Cannibalistic. Um, Yes. And cannibalistic. There's a very unforgettable scene where one of the aliens is like, Hey, Visser 3, just FYI, it's going to take 20 minutes for us to launch the spaceship. And Visser 3 is like, unacceptable, and slashes him, <laughs> yeah. and then tells his fellow aliens, yep, go ahead and eat him. Yeah. And they're already salivating and, like, chomping at the bit, ready to just consume him while he's still alive. Like sharks and I'm just in the sitting water. Here. Exactly. It's like, the little tiny scent of blood is enough to set them off. And again, I'm just sitting here thinking, like Isaac said, I used to see these books next to Captain Underpants. Like, <laughs> yeah. I Another again, great series. Yeah, we should do that one next. <laughs> We're just going to do the whole Scholastic Library. Yeah! <laughs> Speaking of aliens brutality in this series, the poor fucking Hork-Bajir! Yes, yeah. Like, they, they specifically go out of the way at the beginning to be like, Hey, even though these are big, terrifying creatures, you know, they're actually a docile species that were forcefully taken over. It's not their fault. You know, they like they were a peaceful race, but the Yerks got control of almost all of them. And like they get mutilated throughout this series in the first book. Like, I think Marco as a gorilla rips one in half and like. Uh, Tobias blinds one as a as his hawk form, and then Visser Three later comes up and like completely disintegrates it or eats it or something, and like these poor things just die left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can yeah, talk. They, um, they talk too. Like they have like a combination of human and like alien language that they use, so they're clearly like still sentient and stuff. And it's just like these poor creatures are just dying all over the place. Yeah, and as far as I can remember, the only character that's acknowledged that is Tobias. Like, 
uh, there's a segment in his book where he has to remind himself, like, oh, but they're also victims, you know? Um, yeah. The Andalite told us that, you know, they were a peaceful race until the Irks came along. But at the same time, like, they're they're the enemy because they're trying to kill them, you know? Like, they got Yurks in their heads, so as victimized as they may be, like, they're still gonna, you know, do the, 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 the soldier-like thing and, you know, take them out when they can, which is, like... I'm sure it's going to come back to to haunt them later on. Oh yeah, there's a lot of seeds planted that I'm sure are going to be explored as the series continues. We're definitely going to get like a moment where they come across an uncontrolled hork bajir and like it endears themselves to them, and then they're all going to think like, "How many of these things have we killed?" <laughs> like that's yeah. definitely going to come come up later in the series. Like it's just. Oh, God, it's so... This is a war story. Like, this is a horrifying tragedy of child soldiers having to do their absolute best with guerrilla tactics to hold off an invading force. Like, it is... God, it is heavy shit. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's... We, we we go on and on about how sad and intense it is. Um, and it is, but it's still... They're still also very entertaining books. Yes. But... There's 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 so much underneath the surface that you can keep talking about it forever. Like as as entertaining as they are, like you you step back, and you're like, hold up, like these are 14 year olds, and they've been they've taken it upon themselves to be child soldiers. They're slowly becoming militarized. You know, they're they're slowly learning how to dehumanize the enemy. How how far is this gonna go? by the end you know what are they gonna be like at the end of this This, would this series this would count as a superhero series technically wouldn't it um it's sci-fi but it's also i've heard it i've heard it referred to kind of like a superhero-esque because they have they have superpowers they're using them to fight against the forces of evil and everything they have secret identities i like it has all the qualifiers of being a superhero series so like this like mid nineties was already subverting like the idea of like what it takes to be a superhero and like the horrifying trauma that comes with like heroics, you know, like, it's not like, Oh, you're just saving the day and whatnot. You're not just going to punch the bad guys and make them run away. It's like, no, there's, there's going to be bloodshed. You're going to lose a lot. Like this is, this is going to be bad and dark and painful. Like, I'm just, I'm so impressed with how much subversion this did in the time place it took, it it like took place in and like how much I can see like how it might have influenced so many other works that are now targeted towards younger adults. Like I can see this being like a gateway for a lot of other creators who are like, man, if Animorphs could get away with this kind of stuff, maybe I can try and push the limits of what we can target towards younger audiences. Yeah. Um, I can totally, I, I haven't read about any authors who, who write for a younger audience specifically name drop Animorphs. And um, this may be my my ignorance speaking, but I can't think of a series um, from around the time of Animorphs or a little bit before it with the same demographic that tackles its story in in such a mature and nuanced way. In in a way, like, I can't help but see Animorphs as sort of the precursor to huge popular series like 
the aforementioned Hunger Games or the Maze Runner and, and, and other books like that, like Power Rangers, for example, came out around the same time, a little bit before, but it's been ongoing since it came out in the, in the early 90s. It's got the same sort of basic setup. Um, teens are bestowed powers by an alien. They can transform, you know, and become stronger. And they have animal-based powers. But um, it's completely and utterly surface in that regard. Like, yeah. it, never really, it never really digs deep into, like, what it's like to, to have the burden of... Cause when you think about it, the Power Rangers are also children's soldiers. Yeah. They're, they're also fighting a war with aliens, but it, it never later on in, in later series, it, it they get a little darker, a little more complex, but never to the point where it's like, holy crap, Power Rangers, what are you doing? Animorphs is like the complete antithesis to that. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm sure it's not purposeful, but it, it almost plays as like the, the dark flip side of something like Power Rangers. You pick it up, you think you're going to get a fun and, oh, look, there's a kid turning into a gorilla on the cover. That That's going to be fun. And then he's just like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. All right. Let's jump into review review. Uh, so review review. We'll, we'll add a little jingle to that eventually. So for book two, which is The Visitor, it got a 3.82 out of five stars. And for The Encounter, which is the third book, got a 3.86 out of five stars. So all of these books so far have gotten pretty good reviews in general, like at least above average. Nothing's been like low ratings. Let's see. And this is Goodreads, right? Yeah, this is from Goodreads. Let's start with some of the ones for book two. Ash. This is from Ash. Thank you, Ash. Ash says, Dare I say Rachel is the best character? I have no choice but to stan. I have vague memories of reading this one, so I must have at some point, but what's really surprised and got me was how genuinely sad this was, a young girl crying because she feels her parents don't love her anymore? Christ, man, this is heavy. Five out of five stars. Uh, yeah. Uh, we talked about that earlier, so we don't want to beat a dead horse. Yeah. But, um... I just, I'm finding it endlessly amusing how we're having the same reactions other people who are reading the series for the first time are having. I guess it just speaks to the overall, you know, competence of of the writing and the storytelling so far. Yeah. Uh, and I, as for Rachel being, as for Rachel being the best character, um, so far she's probably my second favorite character. Yeah, I stand to bias. Yep. Same. Sad Hawk Boy for life. Uh, I've already forgotten what we were going to put on our t-shirt. Poor fucking Tobias. Was it poor yeah, fucking Tobias? Yeah, poor fucking Tobias. We just need yeah. that with like a hawk crying. <laughs> just like crying into its talons or something. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, next one is from Lin Tan. Lin Tan... This is just an excerpt. They talked about how they really didn't like this one much, uh, and they get into it, and they say, uh, Firstly, the information that Animorphs, Jake, Rachel, Cassie, Tobias, and Marco obtained in this book was not even relevant to their mission. It didn't help them in any way. They risked their lives just to find out something to appease their curiosity. Secondly, Marco's I-don't-want-to-do-this attitude did not improve, yet why did he still risk his life by joining the other four in dangerous adventures? Why didn't he just go back to his normal life and forget that he ever had anything to do with his powers? That wasn't explained at all. Two out of five stars. With the Marco thing, fair enough. Um, mostly just his attitude. Yeah, I like totally agree with you there. We just talked about that. But, I mean, I think we, we know enough about him 
So like I said before, like there's just this kind of implicit understanding that as reluctant as he is, he's still hanging around because he cares, mm-hmm. even though he's kind of a dick. So I don't think that's like a, a foible of the writing at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his attitude sucks. As for the first half of that, um, I don't agree. I think um, that's kind of the point, though. Is like, yeah, they, yeah, they that, don't really. That is the point. They don't really learn much, but like, that's kind of the point. Is like, they don't know anything, and they have to find out something, so they have to take some risks. Yeah, the Chapmans—they're—they're they're only in, you know. Like, that's 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 the only thing that they have to to go about, you know, continuing the mission. So. That, that was their only option, so I, I disagree. I mean, they also don't control... I mean, they have no guidebook here. You know, like like you said, the only connection that they really have here is Chapman. I don't really know what other options they could have had. It's not like the Andalites were like, hey, here's all these leads to check out. Yeah. So... They, yeah, you need they to do this and that and this. Yeah, they can't really be held responsible for what kind of information they were able to discern. And again, that adds to the realism of it, I think, that they they don't know that they're headed in the right direction. And they really, really quickly almost died over nothing, over nothing that would have been important. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're still kids like. Yeah, they're just, that's, yeah, that's that's a big aspect of the series so far is that, you know. They're kids, and they don't necessarily as, as smart as they might be. They still don't think things through. You know, yeah, sometimes they're you still just naive. Sometimes you just don't study for the Triwizard Tournament, even when you should. <laughs> you're stupid. That's right. There's a lot more. <laughs> there's a lot more duh moments in Harry Potter so far. There sure are. Bless Harry, but he's he's an idiot. If he asked any reasonable questions at any point in the series, then we would have like half as many books. Yeah. Oh, boy. Let's see. Oh, this one's not as fun, but it's the last one I've got for book two. Uh, Aaron Mendoza says, I didn't like it as much as the first. I'm questioning how they got 50 plus books out of this series. Shrug emoji. Three out of five stars. Uh, I mean, that's uh, fair to not like it as much as the first, because like I said earlier, it's a more grounded, smaller story where they have less of a specific goal and they're just trying to figure things out. And the first does such a good job of setting things down. I think it's a little too early in the series to say, man, how did, <laughs> how did they get 50 plus books out of this? It's book two and I'm already bored. Yeah. Um, that's kind of, it's, I mean, what do you expect? Like if you know, there's 54 books, like adjust expectations accordingly. Obviously they all can't be as, Filled with incident as the first book. But, I mean, fair enough, I guess. Yeah. Um, Not really anything to say about that one, I guess. Uh, Let's get into the reviews for book three, The Encounter. (laughs) Dichotomy Girl says, Wow, this was surprisingly depressing and dark. I can't say that I necessarily enjoyed it, but it was good. Four out of five stars. Yeah, it is dark. It is depressing. Um, As we've just discussed. I would like to get on my high horse a little. Um, He said, don't know if I can say I necessarily enjoyed it. I hear that a lot um, in people's sort of reviews for all kinds of sad movies or sad books or a sad TV show. I guess I get where they're coming from when they say, like, I can't say that I enjoyed it. Because, you know, people react to certain things differently. Like, we're not all going to have the same uh, reactions to the media we consume. But... If 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 the story grabs your attention and it kept you hooked, 
despite being heavy and despite it like emotionally touching you, then uh, I think you can say that you enjoyed it. Correct. You know, mm-hmm. like. Well, I wonder what this person is trying to say because there's a certain reviewer that I follow on Goodreads and she sometimes will say, I didn't enjoy this book. And really what she's saying is it feels frivolous when I've read a really deep, dark, depressing, emotional book to say I enjoyed it. Like, so I I wonder if this person is just saying enjoy doesn't feel like the right word for me because it was so dark. I think when we think enjoy, we also think like the word fun you know, yes. yeah. it's like uh, these books are enjoyable and fun in the sense that like they're you pick them up and you really want to see how they come out and everything. But like, it's not like, oh, haha, I'm having a good time watching these children get murdered and beaten mm-hmm. and everything. It, it's mm-hmm. there's certainly like a different form of enjoyment going on here than like the standard like. Hey, I'm having a good time watching fun, exciting things happen. It's more like, hey, I'm having a very interesting time. I'm very emotionally invested in watching these children try to survive. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And it it just goes back to, you know, how, how you react to a story and its tone and, and what it's saying. I've always just felt like no matter how dark or depressing a movie or a book or whatever it may be if you felt that it was worthwhile and it moved you in some way then you can say that at least me i say that it was fun i was entertained like let me think of something high profile uh, logan let's take logan when that came out yeah <laughs> we all walked out of it like oh god that was so, uh, it hurt you unzipped but, me <laughs> But it was fun because it was such an engaging, emotional, you know, denouement for the character that we've been following since 2000, you know, like as as sad as I am at, you know, at everything that happens in that movie, I can still say I have fun watching it because it gives me that fulfillment on a storytelling level. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Here's a review. This one's from Fry. Fry says... I know that I've read this book more than once. I literally could not remember the ending. That being said, the entire novel is so far-fetched that I just purged the ending from my mind. It really is that ridiculous. The entire story is ridiculous. I understand that the Yerks probably have human controllers up on the mothership. I understand that those human controllers probably require oxygen and water. What I don't understand is why they would collect water from a dirty lake and keep it in tanks. Where's the filtration system? If War of the Worlds has taught me any anything it is that aliens can't deal with pathogens pair this why is it going on pair with this this with the environmentalist actions at the beginning and some of the things tobias does as a bird and this book was just way silly one out of five stars yes the one where the kid tries to kill himself that was the silly one i just i don't get that kind of nitpicking i just like if you're gonna engage in a piece of fiction that is inherently unbelievable why is something like oh they didn't explain the filtration system on the ship why is that something that throws you off that's the breaking point yeah (laughs) why does that matter it's wholly irrelevant like it's implied simply by stating that oh they're sucking up air and water that it's probably going to be filtered in some way like it's implicit like we don't need to we don't need to 
couple paragraphs breaking down the technicalities of filtering Earth water on your Yurk spaceship. <laughs> like, and I, 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 just, I just find logical nitpicks like that, like, to be hilarious. Like, sometimes they can have merit, but it's like, that's like saying, like, why does Batman wear a cape and, and a pointy cowl? Like, that's silly. Like, well, that, that's just inherent in the story. That's what it is. Really, even know how to address that one out of five rating. It's just so <laughs> ludicrous. Like, I don't, it leaves me speechless. I don't have a rebuttal. Uh, it's just ridiculous. This, it's, it's like you missed the whole point of the book. Yeah. Did this person read the first two, or did he just jump into the third one? Because, well, like, yeah. He said he forgot the ending, so. <laughs> It's kind of hard to do. Maybe he's been giving himself a concussion at the end of each of these books, and he keeps forgetting the <laughs> premise. <laughs> oh boy, sorry, Fra. That was a uh, not agreeing with you at all on that one. I like uh, your work in Futurama, but I don't. Yes, this. that explains it. <laughs> Have fun on the Planet Express, but stop reading Animorphs. <laughs> it's not your kind of story. This one's from N. N says, "This is a cute book." I'm gonna stop you right there. Oh I'm gonna god. stop you right there. Oh my this god! Is, cute is not the word to describe a book where a child who is losing his humanity tries to kill himself after eating a live animal. But to continue, are you sure that's not cute? <laughs> it's cute. Uh, but just not all that exciting. Of course, none of the kids are in real danger, because it's only book three. Of course, Tobias won't lose his sense of self to his animal brain, because he's the narrator. And of course they won't defeat the Yerks, because then the series would be over. I'm still waiting for the plot of these books to get less meandering and more sci-fi. Two out of five stars. So You're thinking too hard, person. Your problem yeah. is that the story doesn't end here. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you know the series is long. Of course the story isn't going to end there. Yeah. Like, Yeah, it's kind of weird that their complaint, it's kind of like they're saying, oh man, like there's no excitement because I know it's going to turn out fine, yeah. but also I want to be finished right now. Let's get on with it. Just kill these yeah. kids already. I know, it's like kind of a weird dual feeling they're expressing and that they're like, I know that this isn't going to happen because of this, but also make it be done already. This is also such a retroactive thing. Like, if this person was reading this series as it came out, there would be no yeah. way to know, like, whether or yeah, not exactly. these kids would survive. You know, if you don't yeah. know that there's going to be 54 books in this series, then there's no way of telling if, like, <laughs> this is going to be the moment when the kids all die, or if this is going to be the moment <laughs> that the Yerks lose. Like, you can't tell that unless you look oh there's 54 books in this series yeah okay i'm not gonna be interested in anything happens except in book one and book 54 like uh fuck off read the wikipedia article yeah exactly (laughs) then don't come here for this i also just had to laugh to myself because i was imagining like an alternate reality where jk rowling wrote 54 harry potter books (laughs) and none of us knew that was gonna happen and they just kept coming out (laughs) Good God! Like, like, can you can you imagine? Like, it's it's a lot of books. I get that, but you're you're 100 right. It makes no sense to come in at book two and be like, oh, I know it's all going to be fine because there's 54 of them. Then go to book 54. Yeah, Harry Potter and just fucking shoot Voldemort already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's so like not the point. Like, I hear that a lot too. Oh, well, 
I know that they're all going to be fine. Hold up one second. First of all, these three books have been really great at establishing stakes so far, but that's besides the point. Did you know that Tobias was going to be a hawk forever at the end of book one? Yeah. Did you know that the attempt to rescue Tom, Jake's brother, was going to be futile? No. Did you know that we were going to get a very intimate look into the into the victims of the Yerks through Melissa in book two? No. This is this is fiction. Ninety eight percent of fiction, you can you can probably go into it with the cynical outlook of knowing, like, well, the main characters are probably all going to be fine. And duh, like that's most fiction. Like that's not a criticism. That's just you being jaded and cynical about storytelling. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a non complaint in my opinion. It doesn't mean anything. The journey is the destination. Okay. You enjoy it as it comes along. You don't say, when are we getting to the fucking end already? Like, what's the point of in t- taking in any sort of media if there was only beginnings and conclusions? Like, watch yeah, short films, then, you know? Watch something. You and have to play devil's advocate. I'm sure, like, if we continue on with this, we'll, we'll hit couple books here and there it's like oh this kind of felt like filler this didn't really do much yeah like i'm sure we'll, i'm sure we'll get to that point but that's that's besides the point but it's like book three <laughs> it's book three yeah it's book three <laughs> it's book three and you're already complaining that like the yerks haven't been beaten and no one's died yet it, like sl- slow your roll uh-huh. champ <laughs> we got time <laughs> We haven't even gone through each character as a narrator yet. Yeah, I think by book three, you should catch on to the fact that this is a serialized, long-form story. And because it's structured the way it is, it's going to keep going over certain exposition in every book because, you know, it's aimed at kids and they're not all going to maybe start from book one. Like, I think by book three, you should kind of know what these books are. Yeah. And and adjust your expectations accordingly. And and if it's and if it's not your thing, that's cool. That's fine. But you, you can't hold what the book is against it. You know. Mm-hmm. One last review. This one is from Just Zika. Just Zika says the portrayal of these depressed, suicidal, and darker feelings are all too real. The way he reassures himself that it's fine. The way he keeps thinking of reasons to keep going, all while listening to none of them. It captures a very real feeling, knowing there's people there for you and telling yourself that you're going to be okay, all for the dark thoughts to still persist, getting louder each day. Five out of five stars. Uh, yeah. Damn, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty poignant. Yeah. Um, you can kind of view Tobias's journey as sort of kind of like a metaphor just for, you know, isolation and depression in young people in general, you know? Yeah. Like, because he's going through a problem that is unique to him, you know, he feels isolated. He feels like he doesn't know quite how to reach out and that his friends wouldn't understand him and that there's no going back. It's yeah. It's, it's a pretty good metaphor. I think overall, just for like the feeling of isolation and oppression in youth in general. Uh, just when I was reading reviews, there was somebody who said that they felt like this book was bleak, but then they corrected it and said they shouldn't really say bleak because the book does have an uplifting ending. And that bleakness is kind of like 
there's no hope, you know, or there's, you know, there's no optimism. And it's just really interesting because it seems like this series is going to be really dark, but that it it doesn't seem like it's going to lose any of that hope because they're still here and they're still trying. And as we can see from the fact there are 54 books, the Andalites are not going to just swoop in here and fix everything and they can just hand over the reins and it's going to be great. No. So I think it's interesting. Every every time a book ends, it's like there's always some kind of stab in the heart moment. Yeah. But I like that. I like that there is still like some uplifting parts and that we know that they're going to keep fighting the Yerks, even though it's going to take forever and we don't know what it'll take from them. Yeah. I want to read the... Uh the last paragraph from the book, because it was like, it was a really powerful moment there at the end. Um, you know, now why I can't tell you my last name or where I live, but someday you may look up to the sky and see the silhouette of a large bird of prey, some large bird with a rending beak and sharp tearing talons, some bird with vast wings outstretched to ride the thermals. Be happy for me and for all who fly free. It's not even a specific message of hope, but just like, yeah, it's just it's such a good thing for Tobias to end on here because it's like Mm -hmm. an acceptance of who and what he is now that Mm -hmm. uh, it's God, this series hits a lot harder than I expected. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting Oh. I mean, we we knew when we went into it because, like, we we've when we decided we were going to do this, we're like, it has this reputation of like being darker than you would expect, being heavier yeah. than you would expect. But like, when you read it, you're just like, man, they were not lying. Yeah. Like, it, it still it still takes you by surprise. Yeah. And it's also just funny because the juxtaposition, because there's that very deep ending that leaves me feeling very hopeful but very sad, and then the other part of my brain is like, next book, dolphins. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh look, they turn into a dolphin <laughs> on the cover. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, they're gonna be beavers in this one. Cool. <laughs> oh, it's a rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. One thing I do want to say because we've talked a lot about how dark and you know everything these books are. Um, they're not like edgy dark though. They're not like being dark for the sake of being dark, you know? It's not like uh everything's awful and life sucks and you should yeah the world is terrible and it's like there are very poignant messages connected to the violence and like sorrow and things going on in these uh, books. It's not just like, oh, we're being edgy and pushing the boundaries for the sake of just pushing the boundaries. It's like, no, they they have very specific themes and messages coming along with that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for saying that because, like, I've been thinking this this episode, like, man, we're just we keep beating that horse about how you know dark and depressing this is. I don't want you know give off the wrong impression that like it's just like misery porn or, or something like that because it's not. It's you you can feel the purpose behind it. You can feel the emotionality behind it. And there are moments of levity. There are a lot of moments of levity, you know, between the banter, between the kids and like, you know, the kind of hijinks they get up to and morphs. So it, it's, it's not just a bunch of like dreary, downtrodden, you know, misery porn. No, it's, it's very much, it doesn't take its subject matter lightly. It's very much trying to convey, like, this is a serious series that will have moments that are lighter, but for the most part, we are taking 
what the events of this story as if they would be like as if they had real significant consequence. Mm-hmm. Correct. Any final final thoughts? Other than the fact that um I'm enjoying myself and I'm glad that uh, you guys brought this to my attention because um, I probably never, ever would have picked up an Animorph book in my life. I know. If you, if you, if you guys didn't go down this rabbit hole a one, couple weeks ago. One errant Wikipedia rabbit hole that Erica and I went down and suddenly yep. we're all hooked on a new series. Erica, any thoughts from you? Uh, no. No. I don't really know that I can read 54 books, <laughs> but I am interested to see how far I can get. It's, you, I, I'm not... You will read 54 I'm, books in, like, the next month. They're just not all going to yeah, be animorphs. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you've I'm the kind of person you, where... Yeah, you've read five I'm books the between now. That's true. I have, I'm the kind of person who's constantly reading and tearing through books, but I don't have a lot of patience for a series. Mm. Um, so I, I am really interested to see where this goes yeah. and what's going to happen. Yeah, we'll see. We'll keep trucking along for as long as it holds us. Um, so anyway, thank you all for joining us in Tug and Geek, our Animorphs only podcast. We will eventually <laughs> get back to some other topic of conversation, but we're just kind of riding this train for as long as we can, as long as the hot takes us. Uh, as always, thank you for listening and... Don't tell my mom specifically oh, that I cussed. Mom.